Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I'm your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you for joining us today here on episode 73 of the show. Our guest today is none other than J.D. Chang. He's the founder of Crushing the Myth, tech entrepreneur who's worked and lived in Hollywood, ran companies in Asia, spent a semester in Venice, Italy, of all places. And you get to hear all of his stories, his life lessons, and how he accidentally became class president during high school. So excited to share all these things with you today. Before we get started, we want to shout out our very first sponsor. Big shout out to Koba Coffee. Koba, C-O-B-A, stands for a coffee bar. It's caffeinated chocolate. If you can't go to the coffee store, if you don't want to go out, want to stay safe at home, but still get caffeinated, go to Koba.coffee and get your chocolate bars in a variety of flavors today. And for our Dear Asian Americans listeners, put in code DAA to get 15% off of your order. It helps us with the show as well. Again, go to Koba Coffee, C-O-B-A dot coffee, enter code D-A-A. If you can't remember that, just enter code podcast. It worked the same. You get 15% off your first order. Big shout out to Peter, the CEO and founder of Koba for being a supporter of the show. And he's coming on the show in a few episodes to share with us his thoughts and his own story. So excited to share with you my story with J.D. Chang. So without further ado, here's episode 73 with J.D. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Whenever you're listening to this and from wherever you're listening to us, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. We are in August and Corona is still here. COVID is still here. Uh, Let's stay home. Let's wear masks. Let's not do unnecessary socializing, especially if you're in the States Um, or if you want to go hang out with people like we used to. uh, You can do what our guests did and just temporarily move to Asia. He he did have to quarantine himself for 14 days in a hotel room, and it was kind of fun following that journey on Instagram. But I think he and most of our friends in Asia now have the benefit of living more normal-ish lives than we are actually accustomed to here in the States. So hopefully we get through these challenges together. Um, I mean, we will get through these together. Hopefully uh, we will get to it sooner than later. And one of the inspirations that I had, and I wanted to make sure that I acknowledge this and give credit and space to JD, our guest today. We are living in, I think in 2020, a not even a renaissance, because I think this is the first wave of an overabundance of Asian American storytelling projects out there. And JD, founder of Crushing the Myth, um, has really given the tools and the opportunity and literally the stages for people to physically build on their craft of storytelling. And so This is fun. This is also sort of a family show. If you've watched any of our videos on YouTube, it is JD's sister, Allison, who is our video editor, who is the mastermind and the genius behind it all. So um, I feel like I've known JD for a long time. Fun fact, the J in JD stands for Jerry. So this is a Jerry on Jerry show. JD, welcome, man. Hey, what's up? How's it going? Good. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. when I actually talked to your sister for the very first time, I think it was from a comment chain in Asian Creative Network when we were talking about um, the show. And this was probably February or even January um, before I had first published my episodes. And we were just talking about this stuff. And I didn't put them two and two together that it was your sister, but it all makes sense now. You guys have storytelling and artistic genes flowing through your veins. Um, how are things in Taipei? Uh, things are good. Um, I mean, it's pretty normal. I've been here 
for the well since Corona, uh, I got here in early May, so now it's about three months in. Uh, got settled down a little bit. Uh, I moved into more of a permanent place last week here in Taipei. I'm looking out my window. It's a beautiful sunny day, and people are out walking around. <laughs> well, we have the beautiful sunny day part here in California, and we do also have people out walking and about. But one of those we shouldn't have. So, True. Um, it's been an interesting time for all of us, and I think in terms of storytelling in general, it's something that we've seen a huge uptick in. Um, I think we've all witnessed as things were starting to close down in March um, that podcast consumption and stages were completely being decimated. Um, stages, obviously, we were not having for all the right reasons conferences and speaking engagements and schools, um, places that are obviously very good and amazing opportunities for speakers to share their stories. And podcasts, because I think most of us listen to podcasts, or many of us listen to podcasts as a passive activity, whether you're in the car, or whether at the gym, or doing other stuff. And um, when work paused, and that stopped, and most of us were, you know, obviously for the right reasons as well, uh, paying attention to the news on TV and doing a lot more screen time to figure out what was going on uh, with COVID and how we can come out of it. Um, so share with us a little bit before we talk about you as as the person. Um, for audience members who may not know or haven't heard of Crushing the Myth, um, what is it and what what do you guys do as, as part of your mission? Yeah, uh, great. So Crushing the Myth is an Asian-American speaker series and also a thought leadership brand. Uh, I started it in January 2019 uh, in New York. And my, my, my vision for Crushing the Myth has always been from the beginning uh, to find a way to have uh, a national and annual Asian American culture con. So I'm from Austin, Texas, and I go to South by Southwest almost every year. Uh, and I, I really use that as a mental model. Uh, South by started off as a music conference, but now it's film and technology, education, uh, and more so in the last few years, it's become cultural. So you'll see cultural figures at South by. And, that, and that's really what I wanted for the Asian American. Well, when I started, I wouldn't even say the Asian American community. I, I, I was thinking like, that's what Asian Americans need is a multidiscipline, multicultural place where we can get together once a year for a whole weekend. Um, you know, celebrities would go, fans would buy tickets, sponsors would be there uh, and do all of that. So uh, Asia, uh, Crushing the Myth started as a speaker series uh, on its path to there. Uh, and I still fully believe that we're going to achieve that goal. Just COVID has kind of thrown a, a wrench <laughs> in you know, anything like uh, physical conferencing wise. Uh, but uh, still still the, very much the mission, very much the focus. In the meantime, you know, Crushing the Myth uh, has had over 80 uh, maybe 85 speakers now who have sh uh, shared 10 minute stories, 10 minute or less stories uh, on any perspective, uh, whether it be dating or cultural identity, uh, politics, uh, church, uh, relationships. And I, and I think that's really important uh, for Asian Americans to have a platform to go out and share their perspectives on everything that's happening in the world. 
And, and that's what crushing the myth is about. I want to thank you uh, wholeheartedly for starting that because so many of us, I know that so many of us agree with the sentiment that we don't get invited to speak on enough stages. Mm -hmm. um, that's a fact. We don't get invited to write books. We don't get invited to speak even at internal conferences at mm -hmm. very large organizations. Um, our fault for not speaking up? Maybe. People just don't see us in that capacity of being a thought leader, probably, or just a combination of, you know, inherent uh, discrimination, racism, add it all up. We are not as visible as we should be in the leadership space as we are in the general populace of employee uh, you know, counts or employee populations or student populations. And so I think what we've, and we've, we, we've, read, we've read so many reports about this already, right? Um, Jane Hyun coined the term breaking the bamboo ceiling years ago. And ever since then, even since then, not much has changed. And so the frustration point for me that led eventually to the Asian Americans, I think is in the similar vein of, well, shit, if we're not getting invited, build our own stage. Mm -hmm. But once we do build that stage, make sure that we invite only the people that we know share the same frustrations because we all have great stories to tell, but more than the content, it's the context that's important. So, um, big fan of what you're doing. Um, Thanks. let's make it happen, man. It's, you know, um, and look, we, we, we've done the research ourselves here and we've, we can read many other research, like, well, I don't know why. I, this is like really dumbfounded, right? Like big event organizers, sponsors, you know, thought leadership people. Like we're actually a really, really, really attractive advertising demographic. Sure. If not, you know, if not the best, right? Um, we buy a bunch of stuff, you know, call us materialistic, but we buy stuff. We consume a lot. Um, we are trendy. We are more educated. We have more disposable income as, you know, a community and a demographic. And so it's sort of confusing, you know, um, and we're so rich with our stories, but, you know, their loss is our gift and we're, we're happy to fill the void. And, um, you know, I prefer for us who actually understand at least some of the sentiment and some of the pain and some of the joys of being Asian American for us to be able to supply um, that stage, whether it be physical or virtual. Um, so I look forward to attending Crushing the Myth live whenever that is. Mm -hmm. um, and just make it somewhere fun so we can go, you know, have fun for a weekend. Um, Hell yeah. Never been to Austin. So if you have it in Austin, I think that would be also fun to go to. Um, so today, JD, we know you as the founder of Crushing the Myth. You're involved in a lot of different uh, endeavors and projects on the Asian American representation front. Um, and you do a lot of work in technology and you founded companies and um, you have a very, very, um, we probably could talk for 10 hours on basically your, re your resume alone. But I want to find out what sort of your, what your early experiences in childhood was like and what those experiences and perspectives led you to become the founder of a speaking organization, a thought leadership organization. And we'll talk more about what you want to take crushing the myth into the sure. next version. Um, so share with us how the Chang family came to America, where did you guys first land and, and share with us a little bit about your early years of JD's life? 
Yeah. Uh, so I, I was born in Taiwan, uh, 19, 1980. And just go, I guess throw it out there. Uh, and You might be the first guest to just go out there and tell us when you were born. So <laughs> okay. very, very bold. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, 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 you know, I'm the last year, two years of the, what do you, I think it's the Gen X. Uh, and then so anyway, so born in Taiwan, um, and my family immigrated to the U.S. at uh, when I was age six. We first went to Atlanta, Georgia, for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then found ourselves in Dallas, Fort Worth, probably uh, elementary. Um, and I, I grew up in Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, went to school in a pretty suburban neighborhood right outside the airport. Uh, school was, you know, uh, pretty big. Like we were five A high school. And we had good diversity amongst uh, black, uh, Latino, Latinx, uh, white, obviously, uh, not too many Asian American or Asian population. Uh, And, uh, oh, and so around this, you mentioned my sister. So my sister was born in the U.S. uh, when I was 11. Uh, So she kind of grew up and she went to the same school system, but she she grew up in a, a... different era for my parents mm. than, uh, than I did. Right. But when I, when I was growing up in uh, high school, I realize it now, I did not at the time, but I realize it now, I was definitely one, trying to figure out who I was, and then two, uh, also likely rebelling uh, against the nerdy Asian stereotype. Um, and, my, and my parents wanted me to you know, score good grades, test well, and we had many, many fights on what I was doing with my extra, extracurricular time. Hmm. Uh, I, I was a good, you know, I, I was a good student. I ended up being uh, number 10 or 11 in my class of you know, 700 people. But the, the number to reach was always number one. Uh, and, you know, that was a, a source of constant struggle between my parents and I. Hmm. Meanwhile, uh, I, I, I ended up being class president uh, for two years of the grade and well, I was involved in student council. I worked at uh, the movie theater Cinemark uh, for three years doing all sorts of box office and Usher B and concession type stuff and just kind of grew up, right? Just kind of grew up in, in Texas and in white suburba. Um, after that, uh, went to school at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, also a very predominantly white uh, uh, school. It's a really, so Wake is a really, really good school. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great school for a lot of kids on the East Coast. Uh, it's got a great environment, great community. I, I would say that Wake was probably the worst choice that I could have made <laughs> uh, mm. in hindsight. Uh, it wasn't the right choice for me. But uh, the school itself is, is really solid, uh, great roommate. And I had a tumultuous uh, three-year stay on campus. Uh, and, and, then, and then I spent my fall semester of my senior year studying in uh, Venice, Italy, and, and graduated uh, a semester early uh, in Venice. Wow. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to... I want, I want to touch, sure. come back on, on, on uh, Wake Forest, which yeah. 
is is one of the odd schools that are always on the list of schools that Asian parents know. That's good. That's not. Yeah. I, I bet you like more Asian parents are familiar with Wake Forest and you know other schools like Carnegie Mellon and Rice, where your sister went. Yeah. Much more so than the average American parent, even of like that's yeah. where smart kids go, which is very weird. Yeah. Um, but uh, class president in a as as a as a Taiwanese American kid in a school that did not have as rich of a diverse population as, as you mentioned, what was that like? I mean, because I, I think we're, you were breaking stereotypes even at that point, right? How did you view yourself and what sort of motivated you or inspired you to even run in the first place and, and take on those leadership roles early in life? Oh, or was this just to like a college application ploy? No, 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 no. It's, okay, so that that's a great story. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell a two, three minute story uh, yeah. around class president. So, and I look my 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 parents are very traditional. Uh, they did not really guide or push me into trying to be a leader of any sort. Uh, and I would say, like, I did not even uh, figure out my Asian American identity or do crushing the myth or anything like this until my mid thirties. So this was twenty years before me evolving, if you will, right, as a person, at least for my Asian American uh, side. Okay, class president. Uh, I was always, you know, even like in middle school, so English is not my first language. Uh, and it took me a couple years after we landed in the US to get fluent in English. But always kind of in middle school had friends, and really never had Asian, uh, Asian American friends, just for whatever reason, um, maybe not enough in, in our community, etc. Here comes junior high. So we have a three grade system, three, uh, three year junior high, three year high school. And because of likely grades and being Asian American, I was in the uh, National Honor Society. Oh, junior National Honor Society. One morning as part of a meeting, uh, they were talking about the 10th grade running for class office. Like, I was just there because I'm a member of this junior National Honor Society thing. I have no idea what running for class office means. Like, I, I have no concept of this. Um, just didn't know. And I remember leaving the classroom. I think my really good friend at the time, white, white guy, was like, hey, you should, you should do that. I'm like, do what? And he's like, you should run for office. And he was kind of doing it on a dare. I... I I may be retelling the story, uh, but he may have said something like, hey, you're Asian, you're smart, you should do that, right? Like, I, I, it may be in my mind's eye. But uh, so people sometimes say things like that to me, and I'm like, eh, okay, I'll try it. So at 13 years old or 14 years old, I just put my name in the little box that's like, oh, run for president. I'm like, whatever, all right, I'll try it. Okay, so there's a guy... His name is Jason Kirsch. <laughs> I still remember him. And uh, he should have been the class president. His grandmother did the mums for everybody. Like his mom was the probably the National Honor Society chair. Time out. For yeah. non-Texas people, explain what the hell a mum is. I know what it is, but I had to learn it. So what is a mum and why ah. is it important in Texas culture? All right. So in Texas, you have proms. I, I'm sure you have, we have proms everywhere. But when you go to the prom, uh, for a girl, you can, well, a guy will buy a flower arrangement that you pin to the, the front of a girl's uh, dress, right? And it's a, it's a thing. 
um, that the the guy goes and uh, you know spends a little bit of money and gets a really nice flower arrangement, uh, gives it to the uh, girl as a gift, uh, and um, when you're in you know Texas junior high and high school, that's that was a a, a small thing as part of the prom going process. So you always have to source people that make good moms. Uh, and usually they're like mothers or aunts of, you know, uh, the high schoolers. So he was very, very uh, popular. Um, I don't even think I, we were friends. I mean, we knew each other. But like I said, his grandmother made the moms for all the cheerleaders. And okay. So now there was a little bit of a campaign season. Uh, yours truly did not really campaign. I like I literally do not know any of this stuff. Uh, there are five people running for president that year, including you know two other people that made really good grades. Then Jason, the very popular person, me, the only Asian. Uh, I didn't even tell my parents I was doing this. Like, I have no idea what's going on. Election day. Uh, our school had three different lunches: A, B, and C lunch. I recently just spent some of my hard-earned part-time dollars on a nice stereo system. Uh, so it's a, like this is 1996. So it's a receiver and two speakers. And uh, I would listen to music at home. Election day. I don't know why, but I woke up that morning and I was like, I- I'm, I'm going to bring my speakers and stereo system to school. <laughs> don't ask me why, but I did. And um, near to the voting polls, I mean, all right, we're like 16. Near to the cafeteria table where you go and vote, uh, that morning, I, I just set up my speaker system and stereo receiver. Uh, okay, now I have to take five seconds and describe something very, very important that actually ultimately ended up leading me to win that, the whatever. Um, our school is very diverse, like I mentioned, black, uh, Hispanic, white, but we also have a really big group of Tongans. And Tongans are, uh, Tonga is a, a, Tonga is a South Pacific island. They're really big. Uh, a lot of them have gone on and played, you know, uh, football in the NFL. They're really great people, um, but they're South Pacific Islanders. And if I remember the, you know, tradition or the story uh, they're also, oh shoot, um, they're also uh, some some religion. I I I I don't want to misspeak, so I'm not just gonna say I'm not gonna say the religion in case I speak speak it incorrectly. But they're the chief the chief Tonga Tongan in like the 70s of the tribe had a revelation from God saying that he needed to bring his tribe to the U.S. and settle in either Utah. Oh, they're Mormon either Utah or Euless, Texas. Don't ask me why. So he brought uh, all these Tongans to the community where we grew up, and we had a lot of Tongans who were very big and jovial and loved music. That morning, I don't, I, I don't know any Tongans uh, at that time, right? Like we're all students and friends, but I, I did not share Tongan friends uh, at that time. But that morning, I had set up my speaker system. And the Tongans in my grade had come over and they were like, oh, this is cool. What is this? I'm like, what? I just got this speaker system. And then one of them said, hey, can I uh, play some music? 
And I said, yeah, for sure. Like, put it in. And so he put in a CD. And then they just, like, jammed out to my stereo system that morning. Well, for three lunches, everybody that walked by my stereo system, they had some Tongan would say, dude, you got to vote for Jerry. This is stereo system. All right? So when you walk in, you're going to vote for Jerry. And when you walk out, I'm going to ask you if you voted for Jerry. And they're big, right? Like big, jovial people. But they literally, uh, I don't know what he, uh, canvassed that day, uh, all of these votes for me because of the stereo system. And at the end of the day, when the votes were tallied, poor Jason, who thought he was going to be class president, uh, did not end up being class president. And, uh, and I, I won that day uh, and ended up being class president. And that's it. And that led me to everything else in life. Isn't it funny how like the littlest of things just change the courses of our lives? Like oh, just absolutely silly, silly things, right? Um, that's a cool story, man. Um, so from that experience, you you said you went to Wake Forest and uh, immediately shared a story of perhaps doubt or I guess regret or um, wish you could have done things differently. What was your college search and decision process? And I guess, obviously, 20 some odd years later, what would you do differently now to make sure that you would have sniffed out what ultimately made you not as happy at Wake Forest? Yeah, that was a tough time. Um, Not like crazy tough, but for our family, uh, when I graduated high school, a bunch of things happened. Uh, My grandmother passed. My family moved from Austin to L.A., so then I was going the other way. And uh, also, so Wake was my safety school. And and the reason I know Wake is because uh, another uh, high school friend had gone to Wake the year before. Uh, Mm -hmm. So my parents and I actually went and visited Wake uh, as a a tour, and they really liked how, you know, it's a beautiful campus, and it's gated, and uh, it's, it's a private school. But I went to, I, I had six schools on my list, uh, Harvard, Yale, Duke, Stanford, Wake, and TCU. Uh, I did not think about University of Texas at all or any big, uh, large school. Uh, I, uh, my, my parents wanted me to go study for the SATs. So I did that. I did the usual SAT stuff. But uh I, I remember like scoring like the 13, this is, you know, when we did 1600 scores. So I did like, I think it's back to 600 now. Oh, is it? Ah, cool. Yeah. Okay. 2400 was like a, a brief moment of brilliance. And now it's back. I think so. Cause the ad- addition of the extra English stuff isn't fair. Yeah. <laughs> we knew that, but <laughs> yes. maybe they finally yeah. realized it. So anyways, uh, I, I didn't score high enough. So ultimately I, uh, that I was not accepted by the four, the top four schools uh, on my list. And at that point, I think along with some things that were happening in our family, my parents just were like, they were just dealing with other things at the time. And they were not happy with me for not getting accepted into the top four schools. Uh, so I, I just, you know, chose Wake. Uh, and I remember flying from LA to North Carolina on my trek to uh, college, uh, just, I had two suitcases and I flew to North Carolina 
uh, and I landed in North Carolina and, and didn't really know anybody, right? Like I didn't know anybody east of Texas, so I was just there by myself. Um, and pretty quickly in freshman year, now my, my roommate, Derek, was awesome. He, uh, from Maryland, uh, white guy from Maryland, uh, grew up in uh, all boys school. He had always wanted to go to Wake. Uh, he and I bonded really well. Uh, over Dawson's Creek and our love of uh, baseball. Um, Derek could not have been, you know, a better roommate. Uh, but through my time at Wake Forest, I did not get very much exposure to uh, Asian, you know, communities. And looking back at it, I look at friends who, I, I look at my friends now who went to big universities, like, uh, like a UC school or like a UT school. And I could see that they got a uh, experience out of college that, that I did not get, you know, um, I got a different experience, which also was very pivotal and just kind of my, my own journey, but I did not get that experience. I wouldn't say that I regret it, but I do think about it a lot. Hmm. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, I there's a little bit of a, a similarity in, in like my college journey. Um, I was supposed to run for a class president my senior year. Um, I wanted to go it, uh, originally to Stanford. Mm. Um, so my family story is born in Korea, moved here when I was eight. Uh, dad's job took us to New York City right after junior high school. Mm. It was a three year thing. My brother is a year older, so timing-wise for him, it was okay. At the end of it, at the end of my dad's program, Jay would go to school wherever, and then I was the problem. So the choices were, as we were starting my junior year, move back to Orange County and finish out senior year at the school I would have gone to had we never moved in the first place, Mm. figure out a way for me to stay in New York, and finish out high school, which I was excited about. And they said, no, there's no way we're leaving a 17-year-old kid behind by himself in New York City with or without a guardian. What That was a moot point. And then out of FN nowhere, my mom, through her Ninja Korean Moms Network, finds out that USC has a program called the Resident Honors Program that accepts high school juniors a year ahead, which actually is a program meant for students who go to rural schools or schools that are not that academically challenging. And they basically wanted to cherry pick these smart kids away from those schools because those students would have exhausted their high school curriculum by junior Mm -hmm. year and Mm -hmm. would have gone to junior college anyway. I was not such a case. We had uh, my high school, um, we had four-year requirements for everything. So I risked basically being a, this is such a weird story. I ended up going to get my diploma anyway, because I was really like homies with our principal and like he made it work. Mm. But for a while, I stood the chance of having like been a college student, but technically a high school dropout. Very weird. Nice. But anyway, so like I, I too had like, and I love USC and I, and I love my experience and it's made me into who I am. But as soon as I got there, I was like, F this place. Right. Like I shouldn't I, I shouldn't be here, you know. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I couldn't run for school president, which 
I'm still bitter about because I don't know what I've, I, if I would have won, right? Um, but everybody expect, expected me to. I couldn't because um, I guess in theory I could have and then told the school, oh, I'm leaving. Mm, yeah, but, right. But of all stupid occurrences, the year before, the guy who won also moved away. And so yeah. there was this big like, you know, controversy. This guy was a dick because he knew his family was moving to Long Island and he still ran for president anyway, just to see if he could. And then, you know, uh, we had to have, I forget what we did, if it was a re-election or something, but my friend Jason was president my junior year and he was an awesome, he's still a good friend today. And like all this stuff happened. So like the mood in the, uh, we call it, you know, student organization and the faculty advisor was like, this better never happen again. <laughs> and I was like, well, Shit, I guess I'm not running anymore. Um, yeah. Would I have won? I don't know. Um, my great friend Sandra, again, with whom I'm very friends with today, like she won and she did a great job. Um, and I got to go back after very weird experience. After my freshman year of college, we flew back to New York just so I could go to graduation for high school. Oh, that's nice. Very, yeah. very, yeah. That's nice. um, yeah, it was. It ended up well, um, you know, but, you know, going to college, uh, not even being 18, needing a fake ID to buy cigarettes as a freshman in college because you're still 17. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very weird experience. Um, but anyway, uh, and, and somebody might be thinking that's like the first time Jerry's ever told a personal story on the show. <laughs> um, so may, maybe this is a sign of things to come, but I, well, we, this is, it sounds like we have a similar, um, upbringing, well, not upbringing, but like, you know, sim similar winding journeys and, uh, <laughs> High school and college years. Yeah, I mean Jer Jerry's are uh, Jerry's got to stick together. Which mm -hmm. also, by the way, out of so Jerry's not a very common name in general, mm -hmm. um, particularly among Asian folks. It's not a very common name at all. Uh, my family name definitely not as common as very many of the other um, mm -hmm. Korean or even Asian family names out there. In my high school, a year ahead of me, another Jerry one. Really. But you, yes, no, all, I mean, no relation whatsoever. He's Chinese. No relation. <laughs> okay. Weird, right? Like out of all the places in the world. So um, and, and I think, you know, uh, we people used to get confused when they made school announcements and stuff. Sometimes it was for him. Sometimes it was for me, um, which actually made me uh, like anytime there was like a social media handle release. I knew there at least was one other Jerry Wan in the universe. So I always like was quick to claim usernames for social media stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Jerry, I don't, I'm pretty sure you're not listening, but if you are, <laughs> hi, uh, I'm sure there's some other, other Jerry ones out there too. Now um, let's, let's get back to uh, JD, uh, Jerry Damon here. Um, so you had your, you know, I guess regretful or not the most optimal experience at wake. Um, you spend a semester in Venice and then what a, what a beautiful place, at least yeah. um, you finish out college year. And um, what did you learn about yourself and in life spending a semester in Venice of all places? Well, it was the best semester uh, of, of my, my college years. I, at, at the end of three years. Uh, so at wake, I find myself doing a lot of, documentary work. So my, my, I guess my career in my twenties was in the entertainment business. Uh, didn't know this at the time, but at, in, in college, I started doing a lot of things for wake TV, 
recording documentaries, just really kind of pushed the envelope. One reason why I look back on Wake negatively is they try to kick me out of school twice. So two honor code violations. With neither one uh, stood up uh, and nothing around like no smoking weed, nothing like that. It was on pushing the envelope of uh, film and TV projects. So uh, those are separate stories. But uh, anyway, so I, I was just like, okay, um, one, I'm, I'm ready to graduate uh, and enter the real world. And then two, I want to see something else. So I... Uh, planned out where my fall semester, I didn't have to go back to Wake Forest. Uh, and in my junior year, I loaded up on a whole bunch of classes and, uh, and then decided to go to Venice for the fall mm -hmm. semester. And at Wake, uh, again, great school. Uh, Wake is one of, I think, only two schools, at least at the time, that owned a house on Venice, the island itself. Other study abroad programs would either do some sort of like dorm share uh, or their houses were on Lido, which is the, the main island. But Wake, uh, through its connections, owned a house on the Grand Canal. It used to be the U.S. Di uh, diplomat or diplomacy. So how Wake does this is every, I think they still do it every semester, a faculty member and their whole family take 20 students go live in this three, four story house, like literally on the Grand Canal. All the pictures that you see of Venice and the L'Academia Bridge, uh, you can see the house. It's next to the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, beautiful uh, place. And I, by the end of three years, I was kind of done with my major and I just had elective credits left. So the class or the the professor that was going was, was an economics professor, Dr. Hammond and his family. And so he took the economics students, right? So like these are economics students that went on that semester. Uh, I just kind of tagged along and I was like, I, I want to go. And I think in the interview, uh, they interview you to see why you want to go. And Dr. Hammond was like, you're a, uh, I was a liberal arts major. He was like, you're an arts major. Why are you, you know, coming to, Italy. Uh, and I, and I told them that I just wanted to experience something new and try it out. And, and, and that was great. So I tagged along with all these econ kids, uh, brushed up on my Italian. And when we first arrived in Italy, I, uh, had, I, I remember meeting Dr. Hammond in the hallway or the stairway once. And he was like, Hey, it's like, buongiorno. I don't know. Uh, he's a really good guy. And he said, like, um, what, uh, what are you looking forward to this semester? And, and I said to him, I think this is the first week. And I said, uh, Dr. Hammond, like, I'm to be all frank and honest and with all due respect, like, I'm a graduating senior and I'm kind of done. And I'm going to take all the elective courses. Or I'm sorry. I'm going to take all the economic courses as electives. So I'm going to try. Like, I'm going to try to keep up uh, in your class, in these classes. But... I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time in cafes and I'm going to like go and try and really, um, you know, see what Italy or Venice is like. Uh, and he really liked that answer. And he was like, let's go grab a beer sometime. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, so that semester in Venice, uh, I spent quite a number of hours in the afternoon just sitting at uh, my favorite uh 
cafe down the street. Um, I wrote a screenplay on Michelangelo, the sculptor. Uh, I, so I read up, on, like Michelangelo, if you, for anybody who's listening, uh, if you don't know the life story of Michelangelo, I, I would encourage you to you know, just check out this guy's life story. It's an amazing uh, story. Um, and I fell in love with like Italian history and art history. Uh, and, 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 and then in the econ classes, sorry, so kind of circling back. In the econ classes, um, I, you know, really actually loved economics. I, I never did anything with it later, but economics is, I, I think what they say is like, it's the study of um, choices under duress, right? Choices under pressure. So it's the study of supply and goods uh, under pressure of uh, time and, and whatever. Uh, really kind of just F that up, that uh, <laughs> explanation. But <laughs> that type of thinking through why people make decisions under pressure of time, money, and resource probably planted seeds for me later on uh, to start entrepreneurship because it's in a similar vein to try and solve problems, start ideas. Um, I didn't really understand it at the time, but uh, I ended up having probably the best academic semester mm -hmm. that I had at Wake uh, with economics. Uh, and then, like I said, uh, wrote a screenplay on Michelangelo, which maybe when I'm 50 or 60 will uh, produce. Dude, like that might be like the coolest part of your story because let's remind ourselves this was in 2001. One. Yeah, 2001. Oh, oh, and... No Wi-Fi, by the way, to distract <laughs> us. No we had cell phones, but they were actual phones. They weren't smartphones. So for you to have had that experience then with um, just ample time, right? Like, it'd be different now because we'd still be digitally connected to home into content but for you to be in a place such as venice which is all about just human just like absorbing energy and just being there um that's probably never going to happen for anybody else ever again well well and i will throw this one out for you uh so we arrived probably mid-august and and then we left right so we did end up leaving um shortly after thanksgiving so probably first week of december uh but that was fall of 2001. So September 11 happened like three oh, weeks there. into our semester or something like that. I remember like we watched all of the news footage uh, from the little living room, little uh, TV that they had. Uh, so it was a, it, it was a, it was a really great semester for me. It was a really chaotic time in the world. Uh, and to your point, we, did have, a, you know, we were kind of cut off from everything. Um, and we had our, our, our housemates and our house family there. Um, but it was, a, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. That I think is so cool, man. And like you said, um, whether it was conscious for you then and conscious for you or conscious for you now, you know, those experiences shape mm -hmm. who you are today. For sure. Um, my biggest regret in college is not studying abroad. Um, yeah. hands down, yeah. hands down, I, you know, I thought, you know, 
doing stuff on campus, um, had a lot of club obligations. I had a lot of leadership opportunities on campus. So I just always convinced myself, you know, um, part of it was probably just fear of, you know, moving again or, you know, some, something like that. But, um, yeah, if, if you're in college now, if you're in high school now and you're listening to this, um, as soon as the hell we get out of COVID and American passports are accepted globally again, um, go somewhere and, and don't just, you know, yeah, don't, don't go somewhere as, as a stereotypical, you know, American tourist and, and just go, you know, fun and drink or whatever, like go and absorb yourself into a culture. Um, I, I never got to do it and it is, you know, something I hope to do later in life just to go live somewhere else and, and just experience culture. Um, if anything, if nothing else, it will humble you. Um, it will change. It, you'll just come back a nicer person because you realize how you know different things are in different parts of the world. Um, so you mentioned in your 20s, you were a documentarian. You were a filmmaker. Um, oh, I was a line producer, not a documentarian. You were a line producer. I was a, a li- what they call a line producer. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What what is okay? So for for folks who don't know, what is a line producer, and what were some of the things that you worked on in your twenties, and and where did you come back? I guess what was your, how do you recruit for jobs, or like how do you make plans for post college when you're sitting in a cafe, like in Venice, as your last after, semester of college after nine eleven? I I found myself uh, in Venice. Nine uh, eleven happened, so there's no market for jobs. I was. Uh, I was a studio art major, which is a liberal arts major. So there was even no more market for jobs. And I was coming back to the States to Austin. Like I wasn't going back to the Wake campus. So uh, ended up being in Austin. My At that time, my family had moved back to Taiwan for a year. Uh, so I was just in Austin by myself, uh, living with uh, one of my best friends, uh, even to this day. And started working in cafes and restaurants. Um, I was a nighttime manager for Sam Goody, the CD store, uh, way back Man. in the day. Um, uh, and uh, so, I, anyways, I won't tell a super long story, but I, I started doing like, um, you know, helping out with friends who had film projects. And I did a couple years in Austin that way. Uh, we had a couple of notable like short films, uh, one of those like short film competitions that we won. And probably two years in, so I'm like 24 at this time and still fighting with my dad about what I'm going to do in my, in life. Um, I think he was still holding out that I would go back and be a lawyer. Uh, but, but I, I, I did not, I did not know what I was going to do. I kind of wanted to go into the film business. I didn't know what the film business was at all, but I think all you could see was I'm a manager at a coffee shop, right? So he wasn't real happy about that. So we got to a one day, uh, one argument. And I said, look, th- there's got to be like ways to make money making movies. And and his retort was always like, there's only one Ang Lee in the world. Why do you think you're Ang Lee? And, and I was like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I just kind of want to do. So we got to this place where um, uh, he said, well, then you, you, he said, you got to prove this. And I said, fine, then I'm going to go out to LA and just try it again. Like I don't know anything about this industry. Uh, people say, well, back, back then people would ask me like, Hey, you moved from Texas. So there's this thing for Texans like, wow, you're going to go out to LA, you know, like, 
what's your plan? Are you going to save money? Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I went out to LA and I had nothing saved. And I was going to live with my aunt who lives in uh, Cerritos or lived in Cerritos. Um, now, I had done a couple of like production assistant jobs in Austin, Texas when things rolled through. Uh, small, small stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I went out to LA and here was my plan. I called up uh, my the, the person that hired me on uh, this uh, Hollywood movie that basically shot like uh, B-roll scenes in Austin. I had actually like off of Craigslist worked one or two days for, for this, uh, for this guy. And I called him up and I'm like, Hey, I'm in LA. Like, can I help? Yeah. Can I do whatever? Uh, so this guy, his name's Rob. He, he, Rob has actually hired me like three, four times in life. Um, but he was working on Entourage season one at the time as assistant director. And he brought me on, uh, on the set of Entourage. That was my first job in LA. I was a production assistant for season one, and I worked like three or four days a week for the whole season. So like I did the Gary Busey episode. I did. I mean, I did. I worked the Gary Busey episode, the Jessica Alba episode, <laughs> Jeremy, I mean, Jeremy Piven, all of that. Um, it was a lot of fun. I would drive from Cerritos where I w- was sharing a bunk bed with my you know, middle school cousin uh, to all these sets in Beverly Hills. Uh, and then at the time uh, of doing Entourage, I would reply to any Craigslist ad that I saw wanting for uh, hiring a producer. A lot of student stuff, you know, a lot of indie stuff. The one great thing about LA is that even then people will pay you because it's the industry. So I said to myself when I first landed in LA, I'm, I'm only going to go after paid jobs at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would work on Taraj during three or four times a week. And then on the side, then I would go and interview for these student films. The first one, this guy named Matt Eskandari hired me to be a producer, student film uh, at a USC. He's now a director. His last movie had Bruce Willis in it. Uh, he's doing really well. But Matt hired me to produce this thing. And over the next couple of years, I would just land these independent producing opportunities. And then I would take everything that I learned on the set of Entourage, which is HBO. And, you know, like they're doing everything mm-hmm. professionally, call sheets and everything professionally. And then I would bring it to these student films. And I'm like, oh, this is how the real uh, industry works. I just learned it like last week. Uh, and, and then these produce or these, uh, you know, student directors like, oh, wow, you have so much experience. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, so that's how I learned on the job for the next two or three years. Your question is, what is a line producer? The answer is in the uh, film industry. Uh, there are a lot of different types of producers from executive producer, associate producer, co- co-producer, whatever. In the, in the film industry, there's really like one designation. Uh, if you watch a movie, the credits that happen before the movie uh, are all very creative credits. Actors, writers, uh, cinematographers, um, you know, directors, producers. Those are all of the people that need to get together to make a movie uh, financed. So Steven Spielberg will go to Tom Cruise and say, hey, I've got a script. Why don't you act in it? And he's like, sure. Uh, find a composer. All those names studios uh back some amount of money and then they go to a Mm -hmm. bank and finance the rest of it 
none of those people actually run the day-to-day of a movie set. The hiring, the budgeting, the scheduling, uh, all that stuff, they don't, they don't do. So all the credits that you see at the end of the movie, all the, those are all technical credits, technician credits, your first AD, second AD, set dresser, et cetera. Um, what happens when all the people in the credits above the movie, above the line is what they call it, when they get together and they're like, yeah, we're going to make a Spielberg, uh, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise thriller, uh, they get the money. And then they have to go and hire a line producer to manage the execution of a movie. Line producer isn't really creative per se, but they do hire all the tech- technical people. And then they report to all of the uh, creative people. So in the industry, the movie is the line. Uh, so as a line producer, I report to all the people above the line, uh, all the creatives. Uh, and then I control or I hire all the people below the line right? All the uh, technicians. Uh, and, and I'm the, the line, per se. So that's what a line producer does. So, so far, um, you <laughs> spent the semester in Venice. You worked on Entourage. Um, <laughs> yep. And Entourage isn't even on your LinkedIn profile, man. What the hell? Yeah, um, you got to scroll down probably at some I, way. It's not on there. You have to add it. It starts in 2003. Um, oh. I, I would have made it. I would have made a note to ask about it. It was like one of my favorite shows ever. If um, you uh, if you go back and watch, like, if, I don't know if it's on HBO, but uh, if you go to season one HBO and you look at the below the line credits, way down there, you're going to see uh, background production assistant, uh, Damon Chang, somewhere in there. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm Karachi. That's dope, man. I mean, but look, look at like, the... the the dichotomy of, like you said, like suburban Cerritos bunk bed, and then there you are on a set that like epitomizes and like glorifies this made up superstar Vinny Chase lifestyle that lives in these Hollywood Hills mansions, right? And like that must have been crazy. Uh, that wasn't even real. Oh yeah, I would, I would, I would wake up at four in the morning to drive to set in Beverly Hills. I would come back at, you know, you wrap a 12 hour day or 14 hour day. I get home at like 10, 11. My aunt would have some food. I mean, they're awesome. Uh, and then I would like, you know, go to sleep. I'm, I'm 24, 25 at the time. So my cousin was like 12, 13. And uh, we'd be in bunk beds. And like, you'd be like, what'd you do today? I'm like, I went to, you know, Hollywood and, and worked on a movie set. And I'm like, what'd you do today? And he's like, oh, dude there's this new girl in my class. Uh, <laughs> I was in English class and I was like, Oh, tell me about the girl. And, uh, it was, a it was a good time. It was a surreal time. That's awesome, man. L- LA, everybody in LA has a story, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is yep. very, very cool. So you, you did a bunch of uh, production stuff. How did you eventually pivot into what was your next kind of career in, in a bucket? Um, which is still what you're doing now, which is in the world of sales, marketing, technology, and more of the business end of things. W- was there a, a particular experience or moment that, you know, a light bulb went off and said, okay, I've learned the art and now I want to, you know, execute and, and go start some companies and learn? No, no, man. I, I, I guess I haven't told these stories in such a long time. Um, oh, man, you're bringing back memories now. 
Uh, okay, then you know quickly. I, it, I I don't even know how much time we have. I feel like I've been just telling stories. Keep going. We we got we got all night. <laughs> all right, all day. Okay. <laughs> uh, I find myself at 25 in LA, uh, having done Entourage at that time, having done probably like nine or ten independent shorts. Uh, I've now started moving into independent features, uh, doing line producing. I am at 25, one or two features away from being union. Um, which is a really big deal as a line producer. Like then you kind of get set up for the rest mm. of your career, right? If you're a union and just, just hustling, uh, but getting kind of burned out. Uh, I, it, since I, I left Taiwan at six, at 25, I'd not been back to Taiwan except one uh, week when I was 13. So I'd been like 20 years in the U.S., didn't really know uh, my Asian American culture whatsoever. Um, I just lived kind of in mainstream America, uh, really no Asian friends, uh, and working in Hollywood. Uh, my roommate was uh, Asian American, and she's still a tremendous actress in LA today, uh, Camille Chen. Okay, at 25, I met a girl on a set, uh, one of my sets, and she's uh, Asian American, grew up in Texas, uh, Taiwanese American and uh, yeah I mean yeah I've told this story probably even to you know whatever but uh, we hit it off and uh, she was clerking for a legal firm and just because she wanted to try something else she uh, became a PA on my set a short film shooting in Austin we didn't know each other very well and we definitely were not dating or anything like that but uh, she called me one one night and we talked for a long time and I was like, man, this girl's awesome. Like this was a lot of fun. Uh, and she said, I'm going to go back to Taiwan and teach English for a year. You should come with me. And I said, in my mind, I was going, you know, given everything I just told you, in my mind, I was going, man, I, I, I should get like, I should try and get married, I guess. Or... I don't know how this works. Uh, and uh, I replied, like, I, I think, like, I fought, you know, maybe not that night. Maybe I did say it on that phone call that night. I don't remember. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Right? Like, I, I'm in L.A. working on all these movies. Uh, but I was, I was getting burned out. So that is true. I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, she did go to Taiwan. And we constructed this plan where I would move to Taiwan, uh, teach English, uh, just take a break. Right. Just take a break. That was the idea. Uh, and that's how I that's how I went back to Taiwan. That's why I moved back to Taiwan. I I, I then, you know, moved to Taiwan. She went in May uh, 2005. I went in September 2005. She got me an English teaching job. So I had to like test or I'm sorry, I had to pass a TOEIC uh, teacher certification course, mm -hmm. uh, landed in Taiwan. Uh, and, and that changed the whole trajectory of my life. Uh, but that's the reason why I ended up being in Taiwan. I chased a girl. Um, she and I did not work out at all. I mean, we were still friends, but that's a long, long story. Uh, and then while in Taiwan, just things happen in life. And uh, I ended up, I ended up spending four years in Taiwan. And the first two years was just kind of chasing this girl. I taught English for like three months, but then somehow 
I ended up meeting a lot of Taiwanese celebrities in Taiwan and getting um, pulled into the Taiwanese entertainment industry a little bit. And the first two years from 25 to 27, I was in Taiwan working on entertainment projects, um, did a couple documentaries. It was just also kind of trying to side hustle a little bit. And also at the time while in Taiwan, I don't know why, but I ended up launching a, my first startup, an e-learning startup in 2007 with my friend James, who was my roommate at the time. And uh, it was called Teacher James. And we were one of the first, we were trying to uh, teach English over video conferencing. Uh, we were one of the first ones uh, way back in the day. Uh, way ahead of the time. Yeah, way anybody in Asia has heard of Tutor ABC, which is a really big thing in, in the China market now, uh, Taiwan China market. We were starting right around Tutor ABC time. But oh. I, I, I didn't know anything about startups. So uh, I was doing this as a side hustle. I basically paid an engineer, an uh, Indian engineer to build the site. Uh, we had income at the time, like we had a corporate client. I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, I, I could have I, I gone out and fundraised and probably tried to do something with it. I didn't. Midway through uh, 2007, as I was doing Teacher James, if you remember uh, our friend Rob or my old boss Rob from Entourage, right? Season two or season one Entourage, the guy that hired me on Entourage at this point had been recruited to work in the tech space in San Francisco by his Yale roommate. Okay, wait, so this I will do a couple of name drops. So his roommate from Yale is a guy named Greg Peters, a smart guy. And uh, they're really close. And Greg recruited Rob to go work for his startup in San Francisco. Uh, that startup got bought by a company named Rovi uh, out of the Bay. Um, and Rovi uh, started buying a whole bunch of startups around the world, right? So Rovi's in the uh, entertainment metadata space. They're now called, or they used to be called Macrovision. They're now called Rovi. Rob who has no background in engineering whatsoever. He comes from film and TV, but you know, very disciplined as essentially a project manager. Is uh, in Taiwan in 2007 on a trip because Rovi is buying a Taiwan engineering division. So he's there and he just comes through. It had been two, two years since we had kept in touch with each other. Uh, he looks me up and he's like, hey, I heard you're in Taiwan. Let's go out, you know, like, let's go out to eat. I go out to eat and uh, we party, we go KTV, like the usual. And the next day we go out for lunch and Rob is like, what are you doing in Taiwan? And I told him about the entertainment stuff that I'm doing. And he's like, have you ever considered working in technology? And I'm like, no. And he goes, well, we're looking for somebody in Taiwan to manage this new, or manage projects in this new engineering division that, that our company is going to buy. And we need somebody that's bilingual, that we trust, uh, that can manage clients, projects, and, and a budget. And he goes, like, I know coming from the film world that you can do this. Like, and, he's, and he goes, would you be interested? And I said, Rob, I've never coded anything. Like, I don't know coding. Like, I, don't, I have no background in this. And he goes, well, neither, neither do I. And Greg hired me, and I've been doing it for a year. 
I can tell you, you're going to make three times as much money uh, for a third of what we used to do on the in the film world, and you're still going to uh, have time to do all your uh, film and TV stuff, right? But at least this is something stable. Um, and I know you and I trust you. And if you want it, you can interview with me and with Greg. Um, and, and I think you had a good shot at the job. Uh, so that's how it happened. Um, and uh, so they hired me uh, and I got to be based out of Taipei uh, and manage these. Uh, one of my clients was Sony in Japan. So I went to Japan a few times, Panasonic in Hong Kong and did that for a few times. Uh, and that, that ended up getting me into the technology space. So I spent two years in Taiwan uh, being a program manager for a company called Rovi out of the Bay. Yeah. So let's pause again and think of how the hell JD's life weaved the way it did. Um, and, and I want to, you know, this is really fun, but there's a lot of lessons here. And so I, I want to deliberately pause and, and to point out these lessons that I think some of our younger in listeners in this. In yeah, because I, I think in today's day and age, especially in 2020 with LinkedIn, with Instagram, with everything, everybody's seeing the finished product and trying to figure out how can I hack it the quickest, the most painless way that I can. Um, sorry, life doesn't work that way. Yeah, that is uh, so true. Yep. There's, there's no way in hell um, that JD, growing up in Texas, knew that he'd end up in Italy or would work on an HBO show or would end up in Taipei because of a girl. And then hooking back up with the guy who brought him onto the HBO Crazy. show, which was also because of a weird happenstance. And, and now has parlayed into him being back in Taipei working on similar projects. Anybody who tells you that they knew where they would be today, five, even five years ago, 20 years ago, zero chance. And so what makes you think that you can predict or you can craft where you're going to be in 20 years and then hold yourself to this unrealistic gold standard, probably more uh, stringent than even your parents have expectations for you of, and then continue to feel like crap because you keep failing based on these imperfect or That's fake right. visions and versions of what you think you're supposed to be doing. So I don't know what your path is. I don't know what my path is. And for you listening, I certainly as hell don't know what your path is. But that's the beauty of life. Just take the next step. Don't try to figure out life. Um, I had the pleasure of talking to some amazing high school students this morning. Um, 52, 15-year-old brilliant kids down here from L.A. And, you know, they got, they got so many visions, right? Like, we want to do this and we want to do that. And I was like, yo, you're 15. <laughs> like I know, I know you can't go hang out at the coffee shop or the boba store, like because of COVID. But like, have fun, yeah, and just be a student. Um, you know, figure out college first. You know, but I think I, in a the sense that I got, and they shared with me blatantly too, like just a lot of pressure for these guys now yeah. because of oh the overabundance of information. Um, hustle porn is really toxic on the internet. Mm. Um, just a lot of bad advice out there, and like distorted visions of what success is supposed to be. Um, and I think particularly in the Asian American culture, um, parents still don't know what to weed out and what to continue to put on the pedestal. So they just go, all right, you know, so what do the kids end up doing? They end up listening to their friends, bad advice. They end up following some guru online, bad advice, yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, short answer, if you're, if you're listening to our conversation, you're like, damn, I want to do cool shit that JD did. 
the truth is he had no idea he'd do this. No. And nope. and and timeline, he's we're, we're only at like twenty seven in his life, right? Like we have another, you know, ten plus years. Uh, we're not going to go chronologically, but yeah. think think about just crazy shit happening, right? Um, he had a miserable time in college. Maybe you're having a miserable time in college. Maybe you're going through an extremely challenging time living with your parents at home. You thought you had freedom by going to college, but oops, thanks COVID, you're back at home. Um, this is not the last chapter of most of our lives. So continue trekking on and always say yes, because I think that's the lesson in JD's life right now. Always say yes, even if a girl asked you to move across the world. Because um, if you didn't, you, I mean, you might be a, a Hollywood mega producer and, and we know you for a different way, but it certainly isn't the timeline or the storyline that we're uh, talking about today. Um, so let's, from from that, so you end up moving to America to pursue other opportunities in technology and you've had other startups and, you know, um, a, a great journey there. Uh, let's talk about the motivation or the inspiration behind crushing the myth um, makes more sense now having gotten to know you of just your expertise and your experience in production, the business side, but also yeah. seeing the art form up close, and, you know, up close for such a long time about being in front of the camera, speaking, representation, and all these things that you have now packaged so beautifully into this opportunity that gives so many people perhaps their first time to stand on a stage and say, my story matters. What was the moment that the light bulb went off for you and said, maybe we need this and I need it. I need to be the one to do it. Mm, it was probably in my yeah mid thirties where I went through, which probably a lot of your audience uh, had uh, has gone through or thinks about like I went through like what is what what am I as an Asian American etc. So that kind of journey. Um, I I will kind of piggyback a little bit on what you said and uh, the a uh, couple things. So any like high school student or people that are thinking about their future and and I'll condense it to Asian Americans. It, it's not just Asian Americans; it's everybody. But uh, we as an Asian American community from our parents and from society at large, probably do think about future career as uh, deep, not wide. So get that master's, get the PhD, get uh, a really useful skill, etc. And that there's nothing wrong with that. But when I reflect upon my path, I would definitely say that I am wide, not deep. So I've touched a lot of different things uh, across disciplines, and I did not spend 10 years in one specific field per se. Now, uh, in the past, people in the business community, in the startup community, and others may go, you would hear this advice a lot, go deeper, not wider, right? Uh, and focus, focus, focus. Uh, I would, I'm not going to say challenge, but I would bring up an opposite point. Uh, and this ties into what I like to do now is uh, general thought leadership. I would bring up an opposite point, which is with the future of automation, with the future of AI and things, Deep, not wide, or going deep is going to come under siege by 
automation, AI, et cetera. I believe that uh, the, the future is going to reward at a much higher value than it does now, uh, liberal arts thinkers. So what I mean by that is right now, a computer engineer makes 250, 300K or something like that. Uh, while a uh, poet or a teacher or a, a, a English major is doing 50, 60, 70, right? Three to one, four to one type stuff in the, in the marketplace. I think going forward in the next couple of decades, uh, companies and organizations are going to be able to find much faster and cheaper ways to hack that 250000 a year salary, but they're not going to be able to replicate creative uh, thinking the same way as an English major or poetry major or language, you know, any liberal arts think thinkers. Uh, so I would encourage people out there, you know, you got to do what you got to do in life to make money. But I would encourage people out there to keep an eye on this trend. Uh, for looking for work, people are going to start hiring more curious and interested people and less, more, less deeper people. And uh, tying back to kind of your question, that is a motivation for me for uh, crushing the myth and probably whatever I'm going to do in life. Uh, the opportunities that I've had myself did not come because they saw that I was a charcoal studio art major from Wake Forest with no master's or PhD. That is not why people hired me. Uh, people are hiring me because, well, one, they probably trust me, but two, in interviews and uh, or even in sales deals. I, I, I lead a B2B sales firm, uh, consulting firm in Taiwan now. Uh, even in sales deals, they're hiring me because I am telling them things about their industry, about their disciplines, about life, about current events, about whatever, that they may not have th thought about before. And if you can connect with somebody on that level where they both think that they, both they trust you and they think you're smart and that, wow, this person keeps up with what is happening in the world today, you are much more likely to get that job, to get that deal, to get that partnership. So that has been the hallmark of kind of my journey, right? I, I'm not out there getting these opportunities because I'm a double PhD. I'm out there getting these opportunities because people are like, wow, you work on interesting things. Yeah. That's such an important lesson. You have to be versatile. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in consulting and I did a lot of recruiting and talking to students, whether it was from undergrad or business school, one of the most popular or often questions that I would get is what skill do I need to learn to be attractive to your company? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and then they would rattle off, you know, I don't know, R, Python, you know, do I need to be well-versed in Tableau? And I don't know, I'd say, why? Like, we can teach anybody that, but what makes you unique? What makes okay. you a human being? What makes us trust you in, in a conference room with a client when we walk away? We can teach anybody technical skills, but what makes you coming from this school 
uniquely positioned to be a part of the organization. And that, you know, I, you know, do we, do we blame current public education system? Probably. Do we blame other idiots out there who are spewing nonsense of this is how I got my job and you should follow me? Probably. Do we blame partially our very, very well-intentioned immigrant parents who have no idea how American corporate systems work and they only believe what they hear either from church or the local newspaper? Absolutely. (laughs) It's a combination of all those things. But um, think about how much the world, and if you're, you know, if you're much younger than we are, it might be hard to visualize, but, um, and and perhaps that's what I, I think it makes, you know, those of us in our, you know, I don't know, mid, late thirties ish, like be a little bit more, uh, mindful of this is we grew up without any of the stuff that people in college now take for granted. Mm-hmm. Like we literally grew up with dial up internet. We grew up with no cell phone. We grew up with pagers. We grew up at a time where like we had to pay for per text, 10 cents a text, sending or receiving awful business model. Mm-hmm. And, and so we understand how quickly things changed, right? Um, you know, from a technical perspective, a lot of my friends in high school were taking C++ and that was supposed to be the game changer, right? Like if you knew that you could get a job for the rest of your life. Not really. If you talk to engineers today, yeah, that's, that's true. not it changes. right. So that's right. So you want to, you know, again, I'm not knocking technical stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But and then here's the other thing that I find really fascinating. If you look at uh, the things that JD is doing now, people respect him for his accomplishments. But come to find out through an interview like this or anything else, you're like, wait a minute, you did what? And in hindsight we put it on a pedestal, right? Like, oh, it's because he knows the value of a hard day's work on a set. It's because of international experience. But going through it, we as a society shit on those people. Yeah, that's true. You don't know what you're doing. Like, we judge somebody's entire book by the current chapter that they're in, and it's freaking awful, right? And especially like you did and like I am and like so many other people, if we're going the non-traditional path of starting our own things or you know, uh, even startup world, you know, I think it's really, really interesting that we take somebody. Um, and, and so, you know, it's been about 20 years since you and I both left college. Like mm-hmm. we have some friends, not many, but probably a handful who have either been at the same company since college mm-hmm. or at least in a very, very small niche of competitors. Those people we highly value as members of society for things like loyalty and tenacity and dedication. But serial entrepreneurs or other types of people who take risks outside of that are seen with not such positive associated words. Yeah. You know, um, and, and, and so I, I think it's super cool to have folks like you on the show because. And you're not even done yet, so we don't even know what the ultimate life legacy of J.D. Chang is going to be years and years and years from now. But even in this moment. Like tech could be like a blip on the radar into you being something completely different by the yeah. time like we're done. Yeah. And so why are we so obsessed as a society and particularly within the Asian American community by judging people by where we went to school, judging people by what company is on their, you know, top of their paycheck and what their job titles are. Um, all those things can change and really, really 
sad on the other side of elevating the people who have those metrics is that we really poop on and don't dignify and don't respect and even humanize people who don't have those things. Yeah, that's true. That's very good. And, and so, and, and but you know, you do with crushing the myth. We try to do it here, you know, with, with the Asian Americans and other shows. Like everybody's story matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if I followed, you know, I don't know traditional Asian parents' definition of success, we'd only have like people who went to like one of two schools and who you know um, have had miraculous financial success. Yeah. And I can guarantee you those stories aren't going to be as interesting as some of the ones that we've had on where people cry and people share, you know, um, we've had a few people go, oh, my God, I've never told this story. But and like, you know, that's when stuff gets yeah, good. Right. right. And, and so um, what about storytelling excites you so much to have poured so much passion into something? And let's just remind people like these things aren't wildly profitable ventures right. yet yep. right like yep. it takes a tremendous amount of build time and work to build it into something that somebody might want to invest or buy later but in its infancy in the first few years mm-hmm. storytelling especially in asian american or other marginalized communities nobody wants to pay attention to mm-hmm. so why is this so important to you it made you crazy enough to go venture into it knowing that it might not have a financial ending for you I, I think I, I, I just have a natural um, uh, passion or I, I like storytelling. I like hearing stories uh, and perspectives. So a lot of it is from my, my own per, uh, passion for it. Um, second, I, I think Asian-American perspectives are, well, one, as we've said, they're not being shared. Or at, definitely in January 2019, they were not being shared, right? Now they're getting more and more, but uh, they're not being shared, Um and so that was number two. Uh, and then number three, right, the entrepreneurial side of me, uh, even right now, like every, I think you had mentioned it earlier uh, in this recording, I think that there is a big market inefficiency for Asian American uh, consumer uh, expenditures. What I mean by that is, right, marketing budgets are not reflecting the purchasing power of Asian American audiences. So given time, that will adjust for itself. Uh, however the decisions to be made and the gatekeepers who own budgets that will adjust for itself. And when I did CTM, I kind of felt like, you know, it'll take a few years uh, before enough marketing budgets will, for example, pay for sponsorships or partnerships. Uh, And, and I think that's held to be true. Um, I, I don't think that we're there yet even today, but more and more you see spokespeople that are Asian Americans uh, for brands and talking with, and, and having done Crushing the Myth, I, I have talked with a lot of people in marketing uh, or even corporate DNI uh, organizations. And it is on that trend. It is on that path. Um, yeah. But you just got to tough it out, right? Like you got to tough out these years. Uh, somebody's going to figure. Somebody's going to figure it out. And amongst all of us, probably dozens of uh, Asian American organizations that are trying to do something in some way, you know. It, somebody's going to figure it out. We're all going to uh, partner up uh, and the market is going to reward and reflect that. So for me, <clears throat> excuse me, for me, um, I kind of harken back to like when they talk about doing startup uh, ventures, 
uh, one thing that VCs ask or VCs think about and they ask, they try and ask this question is like, what happens when the uh, shit gets or the going gets tough and shit hits the fan? Are you going to stay, you know, are you going to, are you going to stick it out? Right. Like they try and ask a lot of different questions to get to that answer. Uh, but the question that they're really looking for is that you have so much passion for the thing that you're starting that you would do it if there's no money or if you didn't make money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've started companies in AI, social media, big data. I've sold in politics. Uh, now I'm in VR. I've, d I've done companies in a variety of industries. Crushing the Myth is really probably the only business venture that I've done in which I have now done like two years of this with really no, you know, real money on the horizon. Now with money in mind, I hope to time it right. Uh, and the answer that I can say is probably because I have a passion for Asian American uh, perspectives uh, and for storytelling. And it just aligns really well. So that's why I keep doing Crushing the Myth. Another lesson to take away from what JD's doing and what I'm crazy enough to do and, and so many of us is don't chase the money. Yeah. Uh, we believe in the long run. Um, and I know JD and I agree on, on this one topic. There are going to be people and organizations that will win in Asian American storytelling as an industry. Either we will build platforms to monetize ourselves or um, big players like a Spotify or an Apple or any of the big newspapers or studios will want to talk and say, holy crap, we missed the bubble or we missed the opportunity on Asian American stuff. Like, help us do it, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and, and that's just a very honest and blunt, you know, observation and hypothesis that I have on Asian American storytelling. However, that's not the reason why we do it. The reason why we do it is because we do it for free because we're sort of, doing it for free right now, um, or at least not the riches, right? Yep. Um, and, and so so the lesson there is for folks who, um, and, and we've seen such an increase in Asian Americans turning on their microphones and their cameras and creating content, especially in the times of COVID. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we, we started the Asian uh, Podcast Network Group, and just globally, there's so much empowerment right now to go and, and speak, your, speak your mind. Um, but I will say, and I will encourage those people to continue to do what they do, but pick a topic that you can talk about forever for the rest of your life, even if you never made a dollar from it, because the other stuff will get you tired. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're right in the middle of basketball season here in the States, right? Like, and, you know, people go, hey, you know, I love basketball. I love my players. I love my team. But if your life depended on it, could you talk about it until you're 90 years old? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. And, and so, you know, there are fundamental things about our identity that you can't ever change. You know, um, for me, I'm a human being, I'm a Korean dude, and I'm a dad. Those things will not change. Mm -hmm. So if I can talk about those three elements, like I'll never run out of content is sort of the easy business reason why you talk about that. And I can't change who I am. So I also probably won't run out of things to talk about. Um, and, and that's why when people say they have passion projects and you see it, you, you see the parallels in the business world. And JD, you're, you're in the startup space too, and you've been in this startup space. Mm -hmm. People who convince themselves that there's a market opportunity to hack and then go after something because they want to exploit something probably don't come out with better, good outcomes as somebody who just says, 
I believe this is a problem that is going to help humanity, and therefore I'm going all in on it in all different angles. Um, it's not, you know, it's a generalization, but, you know, I, I think you have to leave with your heart, whether it is storytelling or business ventures. It's picking a thing that you can talk about, but you also have to put the most amount of preparation and community to continue to help support you. Um, so share with us about the crushing the myth. We What we see on the internet is the finished product. We mm-hmm. see a very nice, um, well-spoken, well-crafted, well-written, um, you know, almost to the level of how TED speeches are crafted, just a amazing 10-minute speech. What are you doing behind the scenes to coach the speakers and to give them the confidence to deliver a very impactful and powerful short speech? So when we started CTM, uh, we would just invite these interesting people to come and we provided the stage and the platform in front of a live audience. And each event in either New York or LA usually would be about six to eight speakers. I had likely obviously met the speakers or talked to them. So I knew what they were going to talk about, but we didn't give them very many get guidelines. And hmm. uh, usually out of every event out of six to eight, you would get one or two really good speeches or talks, one or two ones that maybe stumble a little bit and just average. Halfway through 2019, uh, Penelope Shu out of New York, uh, who has a couple of CTM videos herself uh, and is a physician uh, and she runs, i do a little plug for her. She runs Guiding Clarity, a uh, mental health, she's a mental health coach as well. Mm. Uh, she and I, she was really fundamental at the beginning in um, talking with me and giving feed, feedback on, on these talks and these stories and these speeches. We did kind of decided that we wanted to double down on the quality of the talks. So not just have the venue and interesting people, but let's see if we can double down on getting these talks better. So we worked uh, hard and came up with a CTM, Crushing the Myth Speaker Coaching Program. So just like if you go to TED, they have a TED Talks coaching program. Toastmasters has theirs. Uh, We have a Crushing the Myth speaker coaching program. Now, if you speak at CTM, whether it's an online video or hopefully later in person, you go through our speaker coaching program. And uh, it's not super complex. Uh, It's really like three one-hour Google Hangout sessions uh, with obviously you have to draft, you know, update and edit your draft in between each session. But it is something that Penelope and I have worked on. Uh, I think I I remember coming up with the fundamentals of the program, and then she and I really workshopped it out. Um, And the program uh, that we came up with is very much tailored for Asian American storytelling. Uh, I I, I won't go into it now, but, you know, just the basic foundations, uh, how you tell a story, what kind of story do you tell, how do you choose your topic, uh, is crafted towards Asian American storytelling. This program has now coached 40 plus speakers, I'm sure. So like at, like at least half of the speakers have gone through this program now. Uh, and I'm very proud of it. Uh, I think it's a really awesome program. Uh, hopefully we'll keep iterating in, on it as we go. Uh, and to this day, if anybody out there, or if, you know, if anybody wants to be a CTM speaker, we say that uh, the, the, the stage is yours. 
So if you're an Asian American, or again, you don't have to be Asian American. If you're something in this Asian American space, uh, you can come and speak and we will uh, do a video and put it on our site and help you market it as long as you go through our speaker coaching program. Uh, and, and it's completely free. There's no charge to any of this. But you go through our program. We help you condense your story. Uh, and then we record it. And then we help market and distribute it. But that is probably the unique thing about CTM. Um, I, I know uh, KoreanAmerican.org does a great speaker series. There are other people that are doing speaker series as well. Uh, in, but our speaker coaching program uh, probably is something that's unique um, that other organizations um, uh, don't have. And we want to get to a point where we don't even know how many speaking coaching programs out there mm -hmm. to help Absolutely. elevate the Asian American story. Because yeah. um, we have that conversation too often. Well, isn't there blah mm -hmm. for what you want to do? And you're like, and then you start to self-doubt. You're like, wait a minute. Why am I, you know, competition is what, you know, but it's like, no, we're just trying to grow the damn pie. Mm -hmm. If we grow the pie, everybody has a bigger slice. Um, you're right. I, I think there are a lot of great programs out there. But I think the, the, the key element thing that you focus on um, is getting somebody from one level to the next mm -hmm. of confidence, of storyboarding, of all these things that, you know, um, we don't go through a coaching program on podcast mm -hmm. and most podcasts don't it will take so much work yeah um so something that i'm cognizant of is while we invite people to come and share their story how many people aren't volunteering because they don't have enough confidence in themselves that their story matters that will never know that's a good point so i think right so it's you know people have to believe in themselves a little bit of confidence a little bit of ego go on a website, fill out a form, believe that their story deserves to be heard. Yeah. And sure, there are some people that I prod, right? Like, and I encourage. Um, like by the time you hear this, my cousin will have been on the show mm -hmm. and, and he's never shared his story, any story publicly. But I was like, yo, get your ass on the show. <laughs> and he basically said, all right, you know. Um, but most people uh, don't because they're never asked to. And so I, I think what you're doing, particularly within this context of giving people not only the confidence, but the tools and the space and the physical space um, that used to be and it will be virtual for the time being, I, I think is pretty cool. Um, uh, you had a, a, a dear uh, older brother figure of, of mine on your show at one point back in New York, Ace, um, yeah. who was such. So Ace was the captain of our high school basketball team when I was a freshman nice. in science. Nice. So imagine the awesome, so it was a specialized high school, you know, um, it was very diverse, but still an Asian dude, a Thai dude was the captain of our basketball team. And like, that was cool because he was like the big man on campus. Right. Yep. Um, and, and he's still doing like wildly crazy oh, yeah. stuff, but, uh, um, all sorts of stuff he's doing. He should have, I don't know when we're going to air this, but. He's, he's got his own podcast that he's, you know, recorded a bunch of episodes for. Oh, nice. And, awesome. Yeah. And, and so, like, you know, we're all trying to grow the pie. And, you know, um, I, I've told Ace this before, but it was just like, you know, you play basketball because you wanted to, but then you actually inspired a bunch of kids that were underneath you in grades to look up at you and be like, yo, that's pretty dope. Because in most of American high schools, 
not only are Asians not captains of basketball teams, yeah. we're actually never even on the team. Yeah. Right. So right. um this has been fun. What what is what is next for CTM? What is something that you are excited by and that keeps you up at night and, and dreaming of how to take crushing the myth through the pandemic and beyond? So we have a focus for CTM uh, along with the speaker series. And uh, again, as I've mentioned, like speakers can be anybody. So a lot of these, a lot of times these are like small stories, right? Uh, But uh, we have a focus for CTM to expand a little bit and uh, provide kind of news on Asian American communities and newsmakers. So people like, uh, like an Aquafina or David Chang or uh, Andrew Yang, Ted Liu, like, one of the things uh, in doing Crushing the Myth that me and, and uh, you know, the people that, that we work with, uh, we found is that there's not a single aggregated place of Asian American uh, news links. So mm-hmm. there are some more media outlets, NBC Asian America, HuffPost Asian Voices, Next Shark. They write their own content or they write content, which is amazing. Uh, but I, I was like setting up all these Google alerts and scrolling through my Facebook feeds to try and find the best articles each week to share with our CTM audience. So uh, I uh, thought that uh, CTM can expand a little bit and aggregate each week's Asian American news, uh, both on our website. So if you go to crushingthemyth.com, you'll see a new section of all of the best or important news of the week. Uh, And then also a newsletter. So if you go to crushingthemyth.com, you can sign up for our weekly uh, digest, weekly newsletter of just important Asian American news that may or may not have hit your radar. Uh, so that is something that we're focusing on CTM along with the speaker stories uh, together. That's awesome. Yeah. So please, You're everybody, right. please go to the website and sign up. Yeah. It, it's literally, you, you got to spell it out, crushing the myth. Um, and I, I love the name, right? Because um, the myth can mean so many things. That's right. Yep. Obviously, the big elephant myth in the room is the model minority myth. Mm-hmm. But um, crushing the myth can be a very versatile phrase to say, I'm just going to prove you wrong. Whatever you thought I was, yep. um, I'm going to prove you wrong. Because um, we, we live in a world with preconceptions and stereotypes. And um, for every you know, Taiwanese kid that becomes class president by mistake because of some badass Tongan fools that are just like punking people into voting for you. That's right. Or um, dares to stand on a stage and, you know, shaking inside, but musters up the courage to share her story for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, we not only elevate ourselves, but we elevate young people um, that look up to us, whether we know it or not, um, to do even greater, more crazy things. Um, and on a nerdy business front, um, if you haven't started an email newsletter for your business and you're an entrepreneur, get on it. Um, yeah, read, yeah. read stuff on it. Um, I can nerd out with you over it if you want to talk about newsletters and membership businesses and subscription models. Um, I, je- I, I believe that's, you know, um, as news becomes more specific to the niches and you care about hearing stories from the people that you resonate with. Um, you know, mass media is, I think not going to be the place where you actually get most of your news. So, um, and if you have a voice, if you're doing something, you want to communicate with your, uh, with your audience in, in a, in a more intimate, um, close way. And, um, you know, 
So if you're listening to our podcast, thank you. Um, but we don't really communicate unless you write to me. And, and so, um, you know, we'll be exploring some ways down the line, uh, both with this show and other shows that we're doing uh, to help bridge that communication gap and really figure out what the audience wants to know so that we can go and bring that content to you. Um, this has been a lot of fun, dude. Um, yeah. I was really, really, really looking forward to having this conversation. Um, your sister, I think, was like, what are you guys going to talk about? Um, we didn't talk about Allison at all on the show, so no. you, we, we've spared you, Allison. One day we'll have you in the guest chair, too, and I, I have a plan for that at some point. Um, but this is fun, and I think it is really inspiring for you to see you really live out the mission of crushing the myth because at every single point in your life, whether it was the student election thing, whether it was going to Venice, working on HBO's entourage, going to type everything, you were crushing the myth and it really actually wasn't to prove anybody wrong. Mm. It wasn't to prove your dad wrong. It wasn't to prove society wrong. It was just for you to feel validated in the things that you believed in. Yeah. And that's why we crush myths. Myths are based on other people's expectation of who we should be or who they think we should be and how we crush it and to what we crush doesn't matter because that's what we decide yeah and if the new and improved version of us somebody doesn't like yeah that's that's on them that's not on you right so yeah. um as as uh i don't know as, as as the saying goes keep crushing it um life and myths yeah. for for jd and, and for anybody who might be listening um and let's finish out the show in the way that we finish all of our shows, JD. Um, you've you've been an exemplary and an amazing um, Asian American role model for a lot of us to look up to. Um, and we ain't even done yet. You ain't even halfway through whatever the hell it is that you want to do uh, to leave as your lasting legacy. But here in this moment, um, as you sit in a much safer and much uh, better managed country <laughs> as, as we navigate 2020, share with us some reflections and thoughts that you've had. Um, in the form of a love letter to the Asian American community and help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. So, yeah, Dear Asian Americans, uh, I, I think just, you know, the world seems like it is in a tough spot, uh, but it it's going to get better. Uh, be kind, uh, stand in solidarity you know, having been in the U.S. and in Taiwan through this year, like being both in lockdown in the U.S. and in Austin and Taiwan, which is a little bit more open, right? Like I, I can see the 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 juxtaposition between uh, uh, how people are feeling, but uh, it it, it I, I, I'm a very optimistic person, so I, I say hustle, grind, and just keep your head up, and it's going to get better, uh, and we're all in this together. That's what I'd say. Thanks, JD. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're lost in life, have no fear. We have no idea where we were 20 years ago. Um, and that's okay. And I will bet you that there is no way in hell I can tell you, even with any remote sense of accuracy, where my life is going to be in 20 years or even 20 months. And so... Uh, be easy on yourself. Give yourself grace. Treat yourself with kindness as we stand in solidarity with others and, and practice kindness on others. Um, and ultimately, figure out what you want to do. Try new stuff. Continue to try new stuff. And go tell your story. 
because it's going to change impact. It's going to change and impact people's lives. You just, we haven't tested that yet. So, um, JD, thanks, man. This is really, you know, from the bottom of my heart, you, the work that you do, um, big inspiration to me in starting the Asian Americans. Um, obviously I owe a big debt of gratitude to the Chang family for, um, Allison's involvement in, you know, helping craft my crazy ass idea into a reality and, and letting people, um, you know, absorb and experience this content through the video medium. Um, and in particular, uh, shows, um, as the, the biggest one that we've gotten a lot of good feedback from is David Kim's episode where people who both heard it and have watched it and said, watching it is just so different. Um, cause you see the emotion and you see the pain and you see all the, all the things that David takes us through in his storytelling. So, um, thanks Allison. This is probably a longer one that you're going to have to edit, but I hope you're enjoying it as you're editing it. And for folks listening, um, this was long, but I believe there's a lot of uh, value and perspective. And so, uh, crushing the myth.com, crushing the myth.com, crushing the myth.com. Just in your head now. As soon as you're done listening to this, head over to the site. Um, there's tons of videos to look at. There are tons of articles to read. Um, connect with JD through the site, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, wherever you can find him. Um, and look, whether your interests are in studying abroad or media or movies or storytelling or tech or startups, you can talk to him about it because he's done it all. Yeah. And so... Uh, Thank you for making time for us um, as, as you get started on your day tomorrow in Taipei. Um, stay safe. And I really, really cannot wait until we celebrate in person and wherever it may happen and whenever it may happen. Um, look forward to being an avid supporter and a participant of Crushing the Myth live and in person very soon. Awesome. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Come back anytime. Thanks again so much for tuning in. Wow. Uh, what a great story. What a crazy stories, the plural version uh, of, of how he ended up where he is. And we certainly know that JD is not done writing his own autobiography and writing his own life work. want to thank him again for coming on the show with the time zone and everything. Uh, big shout out to Allison as well, who has been working so hard behind the scenes on creating and uh, editing our videos. If you haven't checked them out, please do check them out on our YouTube page. While you're at it, uh, check out our Instagram page, Facebook page, LinkedIn, and even Twitter. We are at Dear Asian Americans everywhere except Twitter. We are at Dear Asian Am. And encourage you to connect with us, follow us, like us, send us a note, share our pages, however you engage. We'd love to connect with you. And I'm so grateful for every single note, comment, review, follow, like, everything. Really excited to be sharing the stories with you today. Um, as we near the election, election season, as we near uh, what could be the most uh, important election of our lives for those of us stateside, um, I do encourage you to go and make sure that you are registered to vote. Please fill out your census and to vote early if you can. Um, if you have any suggestions for us, if you want to say hello or ask a question or anything, send me an email. You can email me hello at dearagentamericans.com or find me in the inbox of our Instagram or our Facebook or wherever you can find us, I promise to write back and engage in conversation with you. Thanks again from the bottom of my heart uh, to all of you for listening, for engaging. Uh, it's been a wild and an amazing month here at Just Like Media, where we produce the Asian Americans. Check out the brand new Chan Chi show. Uh, we are working on a parenting podcast with former Dear Asian Americans guest 
Jang Cho of episode 12 and 21. Big shout out to Koba Coffee and Peter Lee for being a sponsor of the show. Koba.coffee and enter code DAA to get 15% off of your first order. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts again. I thank you from the bottom of my heart and for allowing us, allowing me to share a little bit of our collective yet unique, amazing Asian American stories. Until next time, and wherever you're listening to this, and whenever you're listening to this, please be safe, please be healthy, don't forget to smile, and keep sharing your Asian American stories. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. Thanks for listening.